0: Michael Higgins. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you well. Excellent. Michael, this is Jay Michaels. If I'm on the line, you're on the air. But you know that already because this is your second time around on the the Passion Pit podcast.
1: It is, yeah, but I'm happy to do it one more time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, the last time we spoke, we were talking about your brilliance as a playwright doing... Original works based on historical figures and facts and things like that. This time we're going way back in history. Another thing which which you've become very well known for is your work in Shakespeare.
1: Yes, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Shakespeare. I've been doing it for a very long
0: time now. Now you just finished a, a marathon of readings on his canon, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, it was my eight by eight the Shakespeare series where. I had roughly eight shows left in the canon to complete before I did the entire canon, and I was able to finish the entire canon on August 3rd,
0: 2019. Oh, I'm so jealous. I, I think I've only gotten through about a third or half of his canon, so, so I'm, I'm impressed with someone who reached all 37. And we're going to talk about whether it's 37 or not in a, in a little bit. But first, uh, you're also right now, uh, I always see your name in terms of Shakespeare projects, and, and a really great one that's touring the parks now. Uh, is, is Shakespeare in the Park from Shakespeare Sports, and it's Two Gentlemen of Verona.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. I gave uh, uh, Carrie my script that I've been using for a couple of years now, and the idea about Two Gentlemen is that I kind of solved the problem play issues
0: with it. Really? Okay, so, yes. so tell us about the production, and tell us what, uh, what you've contributed to this production. Well, uh, Carrie came
1: to me um, about a couple of months ago, She wanted to do Two Gentlemen of Verona, and she knew I had done it in the past as a director and as a fight director. And the play's ending is very problematic because it ends very non-PC, is the best way I could say it. Uh,
0: Yeah, well put.
1: Thank you. So I said I had a way of solving it, which is through random violence. And she liked the idea (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: great. I'm sorry, go on.
1: No, no problem. So, because I worked with her and you like it as a fight director, la- the year before that, and so the idea was to kind of fix the issues of the play that come up and a few holes in the plots, and I filled them with different styles of sword fighting, different styles of violence, different um, chase scenes happening in the middle of the of Act Five. So it kind of corrects some of the um, missing elements of it. Um, and so she, I sent her my copy of the script. She liked what I put together, and off she went. She um, directed it, casted it, and now it's touring around uh, the city right now.
0: And, and you're in it also.
1: I'm not in it, actually.
0: Oh. In it, I did the fight for it. Okay, well, well, then, 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 then all your fisty cups are in it. This is really yes, interesting. So, so uh, uh, you've essentially handed her you know, uh, uh, the first time we're going to see this type of, of ending for the show.
1: Uh, I would say so. I mean, I've, again, I've done the show before, my version of it. Oh, right, right. My version had more swords. This one here really only has just, um, just sightseeing, just fisticuffs involved. Oh, Just on combat.
0: Well, the, you, you're in parks there, so you don't need to, to swing a sword somewhere and, and 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 teach a kid how to shave a little too soon. Uh, exactly. <laughs> how's the show going? Uh, how, how is it looking? How is the audience receiving it? I know it began just a couple of days ago. Uh, how's it going now?
1: Um, I believe it's going quite well. I mean, um, uh, when I did see it, uh, the actors were having a good time with it. And I'm really I'm really proud of them because what teaching the combat they um, they really took to it. They were very excited to get this new variation of the show to be done. And it was just great to teach them all these new things uh, to experience in the show
0: did you Did you get any opposition? Do you get any purists? I've had many purists because I, I love to 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 tinkle with Shakespeare. And, and did you get any purists who said, oh no, it has to be done this way, you can't change it Any anything?
1: Uh, uh, thank God, no. Because I would, I would hate for someone to be a purist about this particular show, right. in the terms of the way it ends. I just, I can't see anybody in 2019 wanting the show to end in its natural state. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. It had that kind of personality trait to want these two friends to just make up uh, any kind of consequence for the actions that Proteus did out Of nowhere, like you do have something has to happen, something has to move along to make sure that everyone at least gets somewhat of a happy ending,
0: right? Right, and 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 also, we women are looked at very differently nowadays, and just in general, uh, th- this is not the time to, uh, to to play it the same way, if you will,
1: exactly, because times have changed, and women are no longer subservient, they're no longer silent, and. The play ends with neither Sylvia nor Julia having any lines whatsoever. Like, once Proteus has done this horrible action towards Sylvia, Mm -hmm. Valentine steps in, uh, Julia reveals herself, and then it is all about Valentine getting forgiveness from the Duke. And we never see Proteus ever get any comeuppance from Sylvia or Julia in that regard. But in my version, that changes. Now Proteus gets comeuppance from Valentine, and he gets comeuppance from Julia. And so something has to happen in 2019 now. You can't just do such actions without some kind of consequence, without some kind of change in the character to make them re- realize how bad they've done.
0: Do you think that's necessary across the boards uh, when you, or across the bards, as the case may be? Uh, We're in a new world. People uh, people are vastly different. You, you, can't, you can't play Othello the same way. You can't play Shylock the same way. Do you think... Uh, uh, do you think we need to re-examine Shakespeare and say, okay, what, what, what do we need to look at or, or do we dare play it the, the way it always is in every, in every version?
1: Um, I mean, I think it should be looked at. I mean, re-examine is a good way to put it, I think, because I don't want to redefine the play because it's been written for so long and held up in such a great regard. But on the same token, we absolutely can re- re-examine how women are portrayed in the play. Like, for example, Timmy of the Shrew, how that play ends with Catherine. Right. I've seen some plays pull it straight up and people get offended by it. I've seen some plays play with the endings and Catherine has a little more power in the end. Or how it plays the dynamic of their color relationship and shows how happy they'll be together. So, I think we can definitely re-examine how women are portrayed and, and do it in a more successful way because it makes the play accessible to everybody because we're not wanting to change the script or the dialogue or the text or even the plot. Of course. All we want all I want to do personally for me, and I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of people who love Shakespeare feel the same way, make it more accessible for their modern audience. Make it more accessible so that a woman watching the play doesn't feel like that they're being portrayed in a very subservient or negative light.
0: I'm, I'm glad you said that. I've, I've always been a, a proponent of uh, whomever wrote these plays, uh, uh, that they were a bit clairvoyant. They knew that one day uh, the, the moor, if you will, Would be called African American and and have great respect. That that the the Jew uh, would not just be a a moneylender. That the uh, that's also a character that needed to be different. When when you look at uh, when you look at Christopher Marlowe's uh, depictions of of ethnicities and women, uh, they're 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 awful when you really get down to it. As opposed to Shakespeare, do you think uh, do you think the Shakespeare quote unquote how can I put this, uh, thought that one day the audiences would change, and so he created these characters so that they can be manipulated into well, into you the, better ways.
1: Well, I mean, look at the scripts, I mean, the way they're designed, they're made to be a director's play. They're made to have right. interpretation opened for however you want to design it or put it. It's why people like modernized Shakespeare all the time. People can find different time periods, different aesthetics, different genres, put the plays into it and makes them all work. I mean, there's no other playwright that you can do that with such accuracy for all the plays through the canon. Almost every single play, you could find some modern adaptation of it, and it works. Um, and in terms of a character like Shylock and Merchant of Venice, I mean, I've always said Shylock had a comic villain, a, a comic villain who just goes too far in his work. And yes, he is Jewish. And yes, there are so many anti-Semitic marks in the play. But you can also do that play to where Shalak is portrayed the way he's supposed to be portrayed, which is a villain who goes too far and gets his comeuppance in the end. Right. And, and, and his Jewish nature has nothing to do with his characters. And it has nothing to do with his personality. He just happens to be Jewish.
0: Well put. Well put. Um, now, now let's also talk, uh, in terms of Two Gentlemen, uh, it's, it's where Shakespeare seems to have uh, become stereotypical in the parks, uh, thanks to Joseph Papp and, and and his own Shakespeare in the Park, we, we've we come to accept that. What are the challenges when, when you do outdoor theater, and you, especially when you do Shakespeare in the parks? What's what, what are the challenges?
1: Well, I mean, I've been a veteran of outdoor theater for going on almost 15 years now. <laughs> One of my first Shakespeare shows was outside, and um, the big challenge for me has always been the outdoors. Your elements, the noises, the bugs, the children, the helicopters, the sirens, like, there's always some going on around you, and and it can be hard for an actor to really concentrate and find those emotional moments, especially if you're, like, staying in the park playing a fellow, you're having this emotional moment about testimony betraying you, all of a sudden you hear, hey, <laughs> it's a playground, like, you know, a block across. You know, and so you have to kind of maintain that, that that mentality to stay in the moment and not get broken from it. And so, the, any actor who can do outdoor theater, you know, deserves a, a bunch of respect because you have to project your voice out there so that everyone can hear you. You got to be physical enough with your body so they understand your emotional range, physically, not just vocally. And then you have to block out all the noises and all the goings on around you. And so, to put on a great show with so many distractions going on is it has to be an impossible task but yet you look around the city in the summertime and even going into the fall there are so many wonderful shows that get put up and are just so fantastic despite all the elements that is mentioned
0: when when do you have to uh, acknowledge the elements when do you have to acknowledge uh, the the obstacles around you, you in, in a modern play it's kind of easy okay you're in character and suddenly you know a, a, a helicopter goes by you can you, you can almost acknowledge it in some way if the audience does. What do you do in Shakespeare? What do you do when, um, when you're in, uh, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, and suddenly a, a, an ambulance rolls by? What do you do? Well,
1: this depends on the play, because, I mean, because honestly, I've always done it where I just, if I can't beat it with my voice, I'll just pause. I'll ah, pause and take okay. a moment to think, and let it go by, because one thing I did learn when I was working for New England Shakespeare, these distractions are going to happen, You have to acknowledge them. You can't just ignore them from happening. So you have to at least acknowledge that they're happening because the audience is going to look away anyway. They're going to be distracted. They're going to be pulled away. So you may as well go with it and just wait for it to pass or keep talking through it and just know that those moments are going to be a little bit abbreviated. So maybe you go a little bit slower. Maybe you take a little beat between the sentences. Maybe you have a little more physicality in your body to kind of counteract that. But the idea is that I think you should at least acknowledge it because it's happening. It's happening in front of you. It's happening to the side of you. It's happening behind you. You have to at least get through it.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, now, how about uh, Shakespeare Sports? You, you're a veteran there. You were you were in last year's production, I think, of As You Like It.
1: If yes. I remember correctly. I played Charles the Wrestler and like, another small part of William, because I was doing the, I did the, um, the wrestling scene as you like it. And I just mentioned to Carrie, I was already busy with other stuff going on, so I kind of want a smaller part just so I could concentrate and be able to build a fight properly and not worry about having to memorize lines or find moments too much.
0: Right, right. Um, were you involved in Her Tempest that just passed? Yes. Wow. Uh, actually, it
1: was King Alonzo oh. um, in the production? Uh, I, was, I only did it for two shows. I had to leave um, the show for the last performance due to um, an illness in my family.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I was able
1: to. No, oh, thank you. Everything's okay now, though. Luckily, good. The, the, the tragedy passed quickly. Luckily, oh good. Um, but in um, the same token, I got to play Alonzo for the rehearsals and for two of the shows, and and uh, it was interesting to get back into the idea of using a scroll and. You know, finding finding the text to, to be your guide in what's happening. And King Alonso is, is a pretty underrated emotional part because he spends most of the play looking for his son. And there's a nice emotional range that he goes through, having to still be in command and still have this control over in 21 Sebastian, knowing that they are up to, self to something, but also have this this um, goal to find Ferdinand and, and get out of this island so that he can get back to hopefully having a son become the king someday. Right. And Worrying about his daughter, also who just got married to somebody else in a whole different country that he may
0: never see again. So, so you're a regular repertory member here. How do you like Shakespeare sports? How do you like working with Carrie Edel Isaacman? How's how's the and company?
1: I'm, I enjoy working with her. I mean, the, I mean, I, I, we have a good rapport. We come as a director and fight director. Um, I've come in sometimes to help her with scenes, whatnot, and just kind of help keep things moving because I have a lot of knowledge in the plays she does, and so it's nice to collaborate with her when it comes to these with these works. And, you know, and someday I love to direct for her at some point. I love to actually direct a play, you know, in this style so that, you know, I can really get a good grasp of what's happening. And plus, there's so many plays I would love to direct for the first time or even again. I just love doing Shakespeare. So, whenever anyone has the, the ability, has the space, the funding, and the chance to do Shakespeare, I love to jump on an opportunity best I can.
0: No, oh, I completely agree. Now, you say about uh, their style, they work with scrolls, yes?
1: Yes. The style's supposed to be unrehearsed. Um, the idea is that you, just get a, you get a scroll, you get your part, you, all you have are your lines, and three lines of the cue before you. So all you... So make sure you have to pay attention to what people are saying. You can't just tune out while someone's having a speech. You have to listen to what they're saying and wow. take what they're saying, yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't know that about the cue the line. So essentially, you have... You have Elizabethan sides.
1: Basically, yeah, because what it was, wow. Wow, oh. them, there, were no, there were no copy machines back then, so you could make, you know, everyone could have a copy of the entire script, and plus, actors worked at worked at different places all the time, so you you didn't want to have someone having your full script, because they could go to another theater, take your work, and put it on as if it's yours. So what they would do is they, the playwright would write the full play, and then take the lines of each character and their cue, and just give them on a piece of paper what their lines were. So you have no idea anybody's saying to you until, you, until it's time for you to speak, essentially.
0: So this was out of necessity, because they couldn't very well write, you know, a 200-page script every single time. And also exactly. to sort of, sort of uh, their own version of copyright uh, 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 to make sure that no one could steal their work.
1: Yeah. Wow. Could, I mean, you never know. Someone could, you know, if you give a copy of to somebody, next thing you know, you're going to be scratched off. Put your name in, and then you have a whole new play that makes you twenty pounds out of nowhere.
0: Wow! I, I was just speaking to Alexander Carney, and he's doing a, a one-man show about Philip Henslow, who was who was probably the, the, mm-hmm. the very first theatrical producer, if you will, of, of the Elizabethan era. And he was saying that yep. they only had about eight hours rehearsal altogether for each project. Yep. So, so I guess the, the the scrolls were a necessity there as well. Yeah. Now, now you bring up a really interesting point, and I always try to talk to, to Shakespeare authorities, of which I consider you, uh, 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 this question. Uh, yes, someone can get a copy of the script and change just enough and hand it somewhere. That's why we have the, the bad quarto of Hamlet. That's why we have two versions of Romeo and Juliet. That's why we have so many different uh, versions. And that's why, uh, essentially, there are... Uh, we say 37 plays, but it became 38, it became 39, it became 47. We were up to something in the 50s at one point in terms of how many plays were attributed to William Shakespeare. So let me ask you, there's a Shakespeare conspiracy. Do you think there was a William Shakespeare?
1: I, I believe there was, yes. I think William Shakespeare did exist. I think he was born. I think he did write plays. I think he also acted in his plays. And I think he ended with to the Tempest, and then, and then, I believe he died. And, and so, yeah.
0: So do you think it was just thievery that uh, that has created this conspiracy, because everyone had a chance to... Someone stole a script, and that was the end of that? Or they I just wrote so. his I name on it for, for effect?
1: I mean, it, I think it happens in almost every playwright. Every playwright, you know, had his, had his issues and people saying that they didn't write this, they didn't write that, they want to take credit for this. And it. I just think that, I mean, it just it feels like way too much of a conspiracy. I think you have to, to think of more things that could have happened as opposed to what really happened. Mm-hmm. And there, there is DNA proof that Shakespeare existed. So it makes sense to me that he just did. And this whole idea of having to find these different figures, I think I've I I read the, so the conspiracy theories about this, about a certain Lord who might've written these plays and Shakespeare took credit because he was a, a jerk actor who just was down his luck and, I just feel like it's harder to create these new stories. They're just saying, you know what? He existed. We have the proof that he wrote these plays. He just wrote the plays. The end.
0: what's the proof? What proof guides I mean, you? Well,
1: huh?
0: What proof guided you into your decision?
1: Um, just based on different books I've read, different texts I've read, and you know, and also you see the different. Um, uh, first, uh, first folio copies that have his name signed to it, and there's a, there's enough copies of each script out there with his name on it just to me to, to say yes, there was a Shakespeare. Yes, he wrote these.
0: And and what about what about all the, the facts that they're saying about how his children were illiterate and there's no uh, there's no manuscripts with his name on it, and and of course he's called the upstart crow. Uh, had, what, what do you think? That's just jealousy. That's just uh, anger on their part. I think it's jealousy. I think it's anger. I think it's those people
1: trying, trying to make a story up and create something else. I think it's. I think it's just garbage to me. I think it's all just people want a story to make something happen. It's almost. It's in a way almost like Richard the Third. I mean, the play Richard the Third was all about the propaganda of, of what somebody was compared to what they really were. Richard III never had a hunchback. Richard III was never as cruel as Lady Anne at the place says he was. And there's even proof, there's even proof in that um, he didn't kill the two kids in the towers. I mean, in the end, it's all a story. It's all propaganda. It.
0: I, I gotta agree with you there. Michael Grunwald wrote uh, uh, a biography of Richard III uh, back then, actually. It was uh, during d- right after his, his passing. And, uh, and, and basically, he was a paranoid king with, with scoliosis. So, and, yep. and suddenly we've turned him into this, this horror movie character.
1: Yep, exactly. And, 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 and Shakespeare knew that. He didn't, I mean, the, the, the history was definitely there, but at the same token, he's writing about King, Queen Elizabeth's grandfather, who happened to be Henry the Seventh. who happened to be Richmond, who happened to be the hero of that play. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you're going to create a hero of the play, you have to have a villain. And so Richmond's villain is this hunchbacked... Uh, evil um, king who stole the pr- who stole the throne from his from his brother and murdered all these people to get there. Wow!
0: Yeah. If, if if Carrie came to you tomorrow and said, "Okay, I want you to direct a play for Shakespeare Sports," what would it be?
1: Um, off the top of my head, yeah, I love the and Honestly, I love that play, and I think it's a great show for the outdoors. There are a lot of things you can do with it. Um. But, I mean, that's just off the top of my head, because I've been thinking about Titus and, like, different concepts I have in mind for it. Um, but I could do almost really any play off the top of my head. I could do Henry V. I could do Romeo and Juliet. I could do uh, As You Like It. I mean, all these plays I've just—I just have just, read recently alone and just love them. And also, I went to Mary Wives of Windsor in January, and I would love to revisit that, because— I was so busy producing Shakespeare's series, I never got to really concentrate on it and give it the attention I want it deserved as a director. So I would love to go back and look at it one more time and really iron out those comic moments that I never got to really hone
0: last time. I I have never known you to not be a workaholic, so what's what's the next project uh, coming down your pike?
1: Uh, Well, right now I'm doing a lot of fight direction. I'm working with a high school on the show She Kills Monsters, and I'm trying to get another job. By direction for Romeo and Juliet, um, and then um, I'm as a playwright. I'm trying to get my work out there. I'm submitting to different theaters and different directors to see if they're interested in producing it in 2020. Um, in terms of Shakespeare, um, I would like to revisit some other plays because um, there are plays that I've only fight directed. I've never got to direct or act in them. So I'm looking at having a, a mini version of the of a series next year with three stage readings of these three plays that I've never. Um, I've never or directed it. I'm only fight-directed. Which would be Henry VIII, Troyes and Cressida, and King John. So I'm looking at doing those three readings next year at some point.
0: Henry VIII. Is that part of the original canon?
1: It is, yes.
0: It is. Interesting. Interesting. I I, I don't recall Henry VIII part of the original canon of the thirty seven. Is. is it really? I, I,
1: it really is, yeah. You know?
0: Wow! Okay, I'm, I'm now embarrassed. Okay, I have to go back now and look at that. Um, that's very cool. Um, Michael, thank you well, actually, so much. I, I, yes. Well,
1: actually, I wanted to say one thing. The original canon for me actually is 38, because um, <sighs> Henry VIII. So the original canon was 36 plays, actually, because um, Henry, VIII, um, Henry VIII was one of them. Um, 38, 37 and 38 actually were, were Pericles and Two Noble Kinsmen, which were added about 10, 15, 15 years after the, the first folio came out. Right. And then, and then about 10 years ago, they added, actually added Edward III to that canon as well. So there's 39 plays in the
0: modern canon. Okay, so now it's uh, Edward III, and Henry VIII was part of it, part of the original 36. Yep. And it never was taken out. Nope, never was. Okay, uh, okay. I've been away from Shakespeare far too long. I need to go back and, and look at my canon. But yeah, I knew all about uh, Too Noble. Uh, but Wow, and Edward Third <laughs> also. Wow, I just learned something. That's great. Michael I,
1: Actually I actually I just did it for I just did it for the Shakespeare series as well. I, I did a play plus one and I, I basically cut in a one hour version ever the over the third.
0: A one hour version, as opposed to how long was it?
1: Uh two hour two and a
0: half hours. Phew, that's quite an edit. Yes and it is a very
1: long drawn out play and a lot of it does not make a lot of sense. And there's arguments that he wrote this part and that part and you know some could come contribute Thomas Kidd to about 60% of it. Mm-hmm. Marlowe think was like 15 to 20% of it. So I mean it's it's a collaborative play among a different, among a different bunch of playwrights. Um, but I figured well I want to go I want to go for the full canon. I'm going to go for perfection. I, I have to add it on so was a, a play plus one of the Shakespeare series.
0: That's great. That is great. All right, Michael, I'm not necessarily going to say goodbye. I'm going to say nice talking to you because Thanks you're going to come back and we're going to have a long conversation about Shakespeare. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the canon, on uh, the different folios, on, as you say, about the collaborative pieces. It's, it's always been, it's, it's been a, a, I won't say a hobby, that's the poor word. It's, it's been a journey of mine in terms of the Shakespeare conspiracy. So, so someone like you I would definitely speak to again on such a topic. But thank you so much for telling us about Two Gentlemen of Verona. I'll make sure everybody knows about your gorgeous and, and safe fight scenes in parks throughout uh, New York. It's going to be in Central Park. It's, going, it's at Astoria. It's up in Fort Tryon. Uh, it's all over the place. So I'm definitely going to make sure they know about Shakespeare Sports, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and, and the authoritative Michael Hagan's role within it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Have a good day.